Have you ever needed help? Like real help. And have been desperate for help and aid. And then being so desperate to then have that help and aid come to your rescue, whether it be physical need, emotional need, mental need, financial need. And to the degree that you recognize you need that aid, right, to that degree, you come to appreciate the aid given and the aid giver. Isn't that right? To the degree that you feel like you need that aid, that you are desperate of that aid, that's the degree to which you come to appreciate the aid and the aid giver. And we see this even in the basic stuff of life. Uh, One of my Facebook friends, he posted this video. um, I didn't know the artist. Um, And in the artist, or in the video, the artist is walking around giving away thousands of dollars. And at one point in time, this vi- in the video, uh, he sort of sneaks up <laughs> upon this family, right? This family's just kind of hanging out at the park. And the artist sneaks up like, and, just, and just sits right there until one of them recognizes who he is. And the woman literally just goes, ha, 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 super excited. And then he pulls out what see- looks like $50,000 and goes on to give it to this woman. Immediately. It looks like the son or the grandchild is breaking out in tears. Just can't even look at the camera. The woman is also breaking out in tears. You know, we, of course, we don't, I don't really know what happened in terms of the conversation. But nevertheless, you can tell very clearly that there is a need, financial, and that need, at least $50,000 worth, is met. You see the aid giver and then the great surprise and also the great appreciation for the aid given. Wouldn't it be amazing to have the aid of $50,000 come to your pocket today? As I watched that video, I thought it is incredible that anyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ has greater aid to give than $50,000 cash right now. It's incredible, isn't it? And our passage today reminds us that there is God who is the aid giver, and He has certainly met all, all of our needs. The question, though, of course, is, are you even desperate? Do you even see your need to see the aid of Jesus Christ? Our passage today is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. It can be found on page 944 if you're using those black Bibles there right in front of you. 944. And here's the main point. We have a verdict or the aid. That's what I'm calling it. The main point is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the verdict. That's the aid. And this this morning's sermon really really just has two points. Number one, there is no condemnation for Christians. And then number two, it's just an explanation for why that is the case. It's evidence for why this is the case. It is how this freedom has been made possible. So number one, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Main headline and point number one. And then point number two, it's how this freedom has been made possible. I'll go ahead and read that uh, section there, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... 
He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those are our verses today. Point number one just comes from verse number one. Go ahead and look there. Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful declaration of freedom. That those in Christ Jesus have the verdict, possess the verdict of not guilty. Now we are definitely going to talk about, once again, how this freedom is made possible in point number two. But the word, and the words here, right, they call us, they invite us to investigate in it, right? There is therefore now no condemnation. It calls us to, to figure out why, to consider. But to help us understand freedom from condemnation, right, what we ought to be condemned for, we need to understand that there is condemnation for those apart from Christ Jesus, right? If there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the sphere of Christ Jesus, united to Christ Jesus, we need to understand that there is, in fact, condemnation for those who are apart from Christ Jesus, those who are outside of Christ Jesus. And for those who are outside of Christ Jesus, the verdict of guilty still remains. This here brings up need, the fact that we are in need, that we ought to be desperate for need and the very aid of God. If you were to read the Bible, you know that all man stands before God guilty. And in Romans, we have a great useful summary. It is, in fact, hard to hear, right? So if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, it's hard to hear. But there are very useful summaries in the Bible, in Romans in particular, <clears throat> that speak about our need because we have sinned against God, right? The Bible says that we have a rap sheet, believe it or not, a real rap sheet. Because we have all sinned, and our biggest problem is that we have, in fact, sinned against God. It's not that we need 50,000 cash. It's that we stand against a holy God as unrighteous sinners. This is no misdemeanor here. These are felony charges against the crown. This is high treason against the crown. Listen to this, Romans chapter 1. It says there that we have suppressed and disregarded God, our maker, and his truth. We did not honor our maker or even seek to acknowledge God, our creator. Instead, we gave away his glory. We gave away his splendor and insisted that the most glorious thing, the most wonderful things are the stuff of creation. Maybe even some of you guys now, you look in the mirror and you think you are the most wonderful, glorious thing. Not, and it was not just the Jews who possessed God's word in the old days who stood condemned. It's even those who didn't have God's word. The Bible says there, Romans says in, in Romans chapter 2, that even those who don't know the word of God stand condemned before God. Why is that? It's because they actually disobey God's law given to them through their own conscience. It is true that the conscience that you guys have, you know, needs to be informed by the word of God, but nevertheless, you have the ability to, to, to understand what is right from wrong. And even you go against that. The Bible says that you too have traded away the glory of God for the stuff of creation. These are the charges filed against everybody. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Romans 3.23, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the judgment for these things is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now we understand this, right? In, in, in the kingdom... You go against the king, it's treason. It's, it's punishable by death. 
But for some reason, we, see, we fail to realize that that same dynamic happens with the very creator, who is king, the only king. Now, once again, I know that this can be hard and even offensive to some people. But imagine, not your own offense, but how offensive it is to God. Assuming that just as we all come from our parents, right, we are all dependent beings, well, we too are dependent upon God. But we pay no mind to God. You draw from His resources, but you don't acknowledge Him. In fact, you use His resources, right, the breath that He gives you, the material blessings, however great or small, to establish your own kingdom with the hope, really, in effect, you hope that it will t one day topple his. I mean, just for a moment there, you know, think about your children. And if you don't have children, just imagine having children. Imagine being the parent and experiencing some shock, the shock and the sadness and the offense when finding out your own child, your own child that you have been raising since the womb has been using you, right, saving the allowance that you give them pilfering your bank account in order to one day cast off these parental chains of bondage in order to not need you any longer, to finally be rid of you. The same thing happens with us and God. We draw from all of His resources just so one day we might live on our own, that we might finally be rid of this God. And that's actually exactly what Ezekiel chapter 16 speaks about. If you go, go home today, this afternoon, and read the entire chapter of Ezekiel chapter 16, and you'll see, though, that even though we sinned, God answers our sin. But this is, this is how the Bible speaks of sinners, those who have been created in the image of God. God draws near. He provides us resources. He cares for all of His people, just generally speaking, wicked or not, he sends the rain, etc. But yet, we use his resources to one day cast off the chains, to be free from God. It's bizarre that we wouldn't understand that, the offense it is against God. But that's what the Bible says. It is offensive against God to do this. And our rap sheet details, right, it shows, it reveals that we not only lie, cheat, steal, have hatred towards one another, it not only reveals that we go on in lust, etc., but you realize that all of those charges fall underneath a big umbrella of dethroning God in effort to be God. We dethrone God in effort to be God, and therefore it is high treason. And that, friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, that is your rap sheet. Now be aware, you are now holding God's charges against you. You are. You're not allowed to tear it up. You can't do that, right, with the lightest of charges. Right? We know this, right? We don't do that with the lightest of charges. You can't even do that with a $25 parking ticket. And maybe some of you have, and it's just going to come back to get you when it's time to register your car. Right? So you can't get rid of it on your own. Neither can anybody else, right? You don't take the charges. For example, if you were in jail, you can talk to me about how I might know this. Uh, if you are in jail, you know, you, you face a charge. You can't, it's like receiving the charges and going to your fellow criminal in your orange jumpsuit and be like, this guy is whack. Well, what's he going to do? What is this guy going to do with the real charges against you? You can't, you can't, he can't do anything to help you. It is as silly 
in God's universe for us to think we have the authority to simply just tear up that charge and think like, whatever, I don't really care anyways. Or to go to a, your trusted friend, your spiritual Sherpa, and say, hey, what do, you, what do you think about this stuff? And they say, oh, whatever, that doesn't make any difference. So if you are wearing your orange jumpsuit, you're in your holding cell, just waiting to get processed, waiting to go upstairs to your regular room where all the other criminals are, right? I mean, just imagine, what good does that do? Does it really erase the fact that you are imprisoned, that there are really charges brought against you, and that one day you will face the judge? You could tear it up. You can have your friend tear it up. But friends, it doesn't actually change a thing. We have a lesson from practical life. If you can't escape a $25 parking ticket from the DMV, why would we ever expect to escape treason against an infinite, eternal, righteous, and all-knowing God? The charges brought against you has only one return address. That is God Himself. But... Right, that's, again, we're talking about what should help us see our need. But what is so mind-blowing about God in the gospel is that although we are sinners and enemies of God, Romans says, and even hostile against God, who refuse to be reconciled to God, God nevertheless seeks us out to be reconciled to Him. God nevertheless seeks us out to be reconciled to Him. I mean, what a loving God we have. Listen to John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, think bad world, not big world, think primarily bad world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then he goes on and says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God sent His Son at the first time, the first coming, the incarnation of Christ, not to condemn the world, but to offer salvation. There will come a time when God will send His Son to judge. But here, John 3.16 says, in the incarnation, and, and if you are alive and hearing my voice right now before Jesus Christ comes back, here, there's opportunity for salvation. And all that Jesus' life and death and resurrection accomplished is what moves us into verse number 1. Our need, God the aid giver, providing the aid of Jesus Christ himself, all of that moves us into verse number one and everything that Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and in his resurrection. And even now as he intercedes for his people. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God has himself, by his own authority, torn up all of the indictments that once, held, that once was held over your own head. And He has welcomed you, Christian, who have repented of your sins and believed on Him. He has welcomed you into the kingdom of God, where you can experience all of the blessings in living in union with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, non-Christian, as we go on from here, we're going to look at uh, how this freedom was given and, and affected that the fact that justification was made possible for those in Christ Jesus. And I want you to keep in mind that this is possible for you if you would only see your need. Christian, for those of you who were here last week, remember that Paul makes a switch from talking about the non-Christian in chapter 7 to then speaking about the Christian in, in Romans chapter 8. Right? It's a reflection, a little, a little summary of what's going on is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Look there. 
Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, that is apart from Jesus, apart from the Spirit of Christ, we are not justified, we're not united with God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, not good. That's non-Christian. Then he switches to the Christian. But now we were released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 5 of chapter 7, speaking about the non-Christian, he just goes on and explains this non-Christian experience, at least as I understand it, all the way to the end of chapter 7. And then in Romans chapter 8, he speaks about there what life in Christ is like, what life in the Spirit is like, life united to the Savior. And that's where we turn right now in this section here. So in point number one, we just, we just looked at the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in point two, we see what our God did to secure your freedom. What God did to secure your freedom. Another way, another way to speak about it is just basically evidences that we are free. Evidences that we are free. What God did, what God did is exactly what Paul's turned to here in verse number two. You see the word for there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for, that's just an explanation. I'm going to give you an explanation. I'm going to give you evidence. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, he's getting here at what God did. And what we have here is so incredible. Because what secures our salvation has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us. Like we don't, as in, we don't bring anything to the table of salvation, but it has everything to do with God. He is the aid giver, and Christ is our aid. Brings us to um, the first piece of evidence for why there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for you, Christian, because God has already liberated you. This is the first sub-point of our second point. God has already liberated you. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's really clear here. I'm really glad that he is clear because Romans and the rest of the Bible, as we already looked at, is, is very clear that those apart from Christ, that we are sinners enslaved to the law of sin and death. That's what it says there, the law or the power of sin and death. This is a comprehensive term here, a comprehensive term, law or power of sin and death, which is used to remind us of what was held over our heads. It is God's law, God's demand for righteousness. Those things were over us, and the law even demanded death for sin, eternal death. And we can't fulfill the law here, and thus there is eternal death. But Paul is equally clear that Christians are free from this condemnation in Christ Jesus. Though there is the law or this power of sin and death, though in verse 2 we see a stronger power and law at work. It is the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that brings life. That's what it means there. It brings life, the Spirit that brings life. So in speaking of the law of sin and flesh, right? he's picking up what he spoke about in chapter 7. Then now he turns to look at the law of the Spirit of life. Just, this, this, once again, is just what it means to live in Christ Jesus. You see this contrast, right, between death and life, 
uh, sin and condemnation as well as life of the Spirit in another chapter in the Bible, super clear, awesome imagery, uh, and it's found in Ezekiel chapter 37. I want you to go ahead and turn there right now. Ezekiel chapter 37. If you open up your Bibles to almost the middle, you'll basically get to Isaiah. Just turn right a handful, few books, and you'll get to Ezekiel. And in this chapter, God brings Ezekiel this vision, takes Ezekiel to this, this valley of the dry bones. And just imagine standing over these, this valley of dry bones, and they are all dead. You see there in verse number one, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Um, and he has them look at all of these bones. Look there at verse three. He asks this rhetorical question to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? The answer is no. Think, think spiritual state here. This is imagery. Spiritual state. Son of man, can these bones live? And the answer is, what are you talking about? Of course not. And then God tells him in verse number four, prophesy, that is, speak over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear thee what? The word of the Lord. God, the aid giver, giving his aid in the word. Uh, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. God just speaks to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Interesting, this word breath here, it's the same word as spirit. You have this idea of the spirit giving life and then eventually, if you go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, you see there that Ezekiel speaks to these bones and they actually come to life uh, all by the speaking of the word of, the God, of God. But then, you know, he recognizes there in verses 7 to 10 that, that, that they come together but then there's no breath in them, right? They came together but you, you, you need the spirit of God in them. And then verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Look at verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, dead bones, dead people, and you shall live. And then he goes on to tell them that they're going to experience the wonderful blessings of being the people of God. And then my heading in the next uh, section here, it says, the heading there is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's covenant language. God taking sinners after he's given them life, taking sinners to be his very own people. Somehow the holy is able to have fellowship with the unholy. Somehow the unrighteous has fellowship with the righteous. It is incredible imagery. But you know, Christian, you can see it with your own eyes in your own lives, right? You know that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and once you too were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God has now given you life through the, His own breath, the breath of His Spirit. Now, you might wonder, Christian, what exactly this free life is, this life in the Spirit, right? What does it look like? If you go back to Romans... If you go back to Romans, it's very clear, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, if you are tempted to think of the life of the Spirit, and automatically, right, you're thinking of spiritual gifts and all these wonderful things like miracles and prophecies and healings, and that's like the spiritual life. Friends, you just got to look at the grammar of Romans. It's actually not the case. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. And then he goes back to the realm. Interesting, isn't it? 
the realm is so crucial here to what it looks like to live in the Spirit that he goes back to it. Once again, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has done what? It's not the law of the Spirit sets you free so that we speak in tongues. It's the law of the Spirit sets us free in the realm of Christ Jesus. He's just talking about union with Christ Jesus there. So we're, we're here trying to examine, okay, what does this life in the Spirit of looks like? What does this actually look like? This is life in union with Christ. It is life in union with Christ. That's what this, this free life in the Spirit looks like. It is the justified life. It is the justified life. So you must understand that the life of the Spirit is connected to no condemnation, which is justification in Christ Jesus. That's what life of the Spirit is like. It's the justified life where there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is very important to see this, that in Paul's mind, logically, as he's writing the letter here, the life in the Spirit is a justified life before God. It begins with being right with God. It is also union with God. He goes on, look there in verse 4, it is the holy life. Right? He's going to get to those who walk according to the Spirit as opposed to those who walk according to the flesh that is the sinful life. So it is the holy life. It is life and fellowship with God. Being in fellowship with God is just like God's purposes and His will and His ways become ours. That's what it means to have fellowship with God. We love the same things God loves. It is a life of godliness, as we already said. Look there in verse 6. We know that it is a life of peace. It's a life of wanting and pleasing God. Look there in 7 and 8. It's a life of adoption as sons into God's family where we call on Him for help. There in verses 12 to 17, we could just go on. This, this life in the Spirit is a life that depends on God in prayer. It's a life that trusts in God to work out His good purposes as we go on with Romans chapter 8. That's what, that's what we know the life of the Spirit is, this life of freedom. It is a life lived with God, in union with God, to the glory of God, where He is our God and we are His people. Now, are there legitimate questions about other things like speaking in tongues and things like this? Yes. <laughs> but if that's primarily what we think and define the life of the Spirit is like, we just once again need to go back here to verse 2. It is connected to a justified life. Right here, uh, Paul sees this connection as being intimate. But just to be clear, Once again, this life in the Spirit does have application for those types of things, uh, but it is the justified life where we are not guilty and where we live before God in joy, in freedom, where we are empowered to obey God. Thinking more about God liberating us, did you notice, friend, that for you, Christian, did you notice that your liberation, your freedom is once and for all? This is something that God has already done. He has already, past tense, liberated you. There is now no condemnation, right? That's finality there. But many of us, many of you maybe speak, you listen, you speak and listen uh, to the lies of Satan, the accuser, when we sin. And we think somehow that God is so eager to throw us back under condemnation for what we have done, even though we are repentant according to God's word. Even though we have confessed our sin, even though we seek help, yet we think that God is somehow so eager to throw us back under condemnation. Perhaps we feel like we are still sold under sin. 
Romans chapter 6. Perhaps we still feel like we are enslaved to sin, married to sin, and so it's condemnation all over again. But our passage speaks to you, Christian, when you feel insecure. The pronouncement, friends, of not guilty, that there is now in Jesus Christ no condemnation because of the finished work of Christ speaks to you. That's finality for you. We need to go back there to 614 when we are insecure and look there. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. God doesn't want you to hope in a possibility there will have no condemnation, but to hope in a guarantee. There is no condemnation because sin will not have dominion over you. You are not right now under the law of sin and death, but instead you are under grace. Listen to 6.6. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right, that, that's finality. It was crucified. As strong as our Savior is, so goes our salvation in Him. Praise God. Did your Savior die or not? Did He destroy sin and death in His resurrection or not? If He did, and He did, then your old self was indeed crucified with Him. And because of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is why at the end of the day, once, you've, once you're face-to-face -face with the gospel, all you are left to do is just receive it. You don't work for it. Time and time again, we're called to believe on him by faith, by grace, through faith we are saved, not through any works of the law at all, but through the free grace of God given in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you struggle with feeling condemnation for sin, perhaps, right, you might struggle with self-righteousness. That's who might really struggle with feeling this ungodly sense of condemnation. I encourage you to remember that God's face towards you in Christ Jesus is not one of an angry judge. But in Christ, His face towards you is one of a father who desires nothing more than to see his kid who's already fallen come back and receive help, right? Right? He, his face towards you is one of a father who desires his child to learn how to ride the bike. He doesn't expect the child to just hop on and just go ahead and do it and then hold him to a standard of accountability that isn't even realistic. No, he recognizes all of our faults and failures. And he saves us. He gives us a spirit so that we might learn to think like he thinks and love like he loves and walk as he walks. That's your father, Christian, who has already liberated you. He's already set you free, and now he's coming to your aid to help you to walk, to walk in the Spirit. We're going to look more about this walking in the Spirit uh, next time we are in Romans. So he says there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What has God done to make this possible? He's already liberated us. But Paul continues to explain, explain there in verses 3 and 4. He presses deeper into what God has accomplished. Why is there no condemnation of the Christian? He says, God has already liberated you. Second, second, because God already met your total inability with His absolute ability. 
Second, he has already met your total inability with his absolute ability. So once again, if you're struggling, you're thinking like, man, I just can't do this. I still wrestle with the flesh, which is why we still identify with Romans chapter 7. We're still sinners. We still struggle with indwelling sin. We aren't perfect. We won't be perfect until Christ returns. So we understand the struggle of Romans chapter 7. It's also reflected in Galatians chapter 5, right? And we struggle with our inability and our self-righteousness. We just want to be able. And God says, hold on one second. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. I have already, God says, I have already met your total inability with absolute ability. Verse 3. For, further explanation of verses 1 and 2. For, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Of course, he is going to move on to the sending of his son. But here, I think it's really good to pause and think about the fact that what God, think about the fact that what we could not do, God has already done. What we could not do, God has already done. Some translators put verse 3 this way, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, God did. There again we have finality. Not only has He liberated us, but He did, finally, already, what we could not do. The passage we looked at last week is all about our inability. You remember that? There in our sinful flesh we are unable to do what the law requires of us and achieve any sort of righteousness. We talked about how our sinful flesh brings death and condemnation. We talked about how our sinful flesh even uses good for evil, using God's commands for evil purposes. We talked about how our sin incapacitates our, generally speaking, good desires. And we also talked about how indwelling sin enslaves us all the more. And with an accurate self-assessment of our inability in the flesh, we are supposed to cry out there, look there in 724, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You're supposed to cry out that cry of desperation. And the answer is so clearly, not yourselves. The answer, though, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. It is God himself. God meets your inability with his absolute ability. Another way to put this is that he meets your sinfulness with his sovereign grace. Because of our sinfulness, we can't fulfill the righteous demands of the law. The law wasn't even given so that we would do it and achieve righteousness by our works. It was given to teach us how to live, but also to expose the very unrighteousness that is in us, our inability, so that we might look for Jesus Christ. Again, God meets our sinfulness and answers it with His sovereign grace. Just look at the flow there from 3 to 4. What the law, right, God's given law, uh, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, God did. How does He meet our ability? What is His answer to it? What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, God did, verse 8, verse 4 of chapter 8, by sending... You could translate it that way. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so we're making the claim here. We're just looking at this. We know our inability. God sees our inability, total inability. He meets it with his sovereign grace and absolute ability. How does he do that? He does this in his sending. He does this in the sending of his own son. Of course, you know, when it talks about there that the, what the law could not do, 
or what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's not saying that the law is somehow bad or evil. Once again, he's talking about how our sinful flesh could never keep the law. God knew that. What the law weakened by the flesh could not do, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Why is there no condemnation for the Christian? Because God is fully aware of your inability, and He has met that in His Son, in His divine sovereignty, in His power, in His love. So just imagine there, right, total inability. Imagine need. Imagine being that, that family right there that knows their need, thinking back to the introduction. They know their need. They know that they're caught up in it. They know that there's no way out of it, and God meets our need by sending His Son. Now, how many of us would look over and see the special guest standing right before us and just think, ha, 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 ha. That's what we're supposed to do in the arrival of divine aid. Total, absolute inability with condemnation hanging over our heads of eternal judgment. God sees our total inability, meets it with His sovereign grace. He sends His own Son present with us. deliver us from the wrath to come. This brings us to the third thing. Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ? Because God already condemned sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because God already condemned sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. I hear that, right? And I think, take that, total inability. Romans chapter 7, take that. The absolute sovereign grace of God, total ability, met. He meets our need in Jesus Christ. He sees our inability in earthly man due to sin, the condemnation that was hanging overhead, and he sends help from heaven. Help from heaven. That's the answer to Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Heavenly divine aid, Jesus Christ our Lord. And just take a moment right there and just stop. Isn't it interesting that Paul includes all of his names right there? all of Jesus' names for us. He could have just said Jesus. He could have just said Son. Um, but he says Christ Jesus. You have the word Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one to deliver, the one prophesied of in the Old Testament. You have the name Jesus. Jesus means that God saves. This is the one that is sent of heaven to deliver us to condemn sin in the flesh. This is underscored and clarified more in verse number 4. Go ahead and look there. Verse number 4. I'll read from 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See the clarifications there? Actually, I mentioned verse 4. It's actually in verse 3, the clarifications for God condemning sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. It says there that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You have there this idea of substitute, the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, this does not mean that the Son only appeared to be flesh. Don't think that. That's actually uh, heretical. The Son of God did not only appear to be flesh. He actually was flesh. He was a real man, and the Scripture passages stress the fact that he was a real man in his eating, in his growing. 
Galatians 4.4 4 says that he was born of a woman. That's a stressing there, his, uh, his real humanity. And so Paul here in Romans chapter 8, when he says that God sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh, he also is stressing humanity. Remember the context. Remember the contrast of life in the flesh, life in the spirit. Our sinful flesh is ruled by sin, unable to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and because we are in the flesh, we bore fruit for death. And God himself, knowing full well man's inability to meet the righteous requirements of the law, sends his son to take on the same stuff as us in order to save us. The law was over man, had righteous requirements over man, and so God sent his son to fulfill those righteous requirements in order to save all those who are under the law. What's stressed here is the humanity of Jesus Christ. In the ultimate Trojan horse attack against sin, God sent his son to fully participate, fully identify with us by taking on the same stuff of us, which is why Christ was enfleshed. It speaks of God, his son stooping down in identification and participation with us in order to destroy sin in his flesh. And so that's why it says there that God condemned sin in Jesus' flesh. That's what it's talking about. In the very flesh of Christ, as it says in verse 3. Now, we do not want to say that Jesus was sinful. He did not sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Therefore, our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in that, Christ is our substitute. But not only does God meet our need, right? Not only does Christ need our... Not only does God meet our need in Christ our substitute, He also meets our need in Christ our sin offering. Christ our sin offering. There in verse 3 when it says that Paul, when Paul says that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, I think Paul here is just talking about Christ the sacrifice for sin. God sent His Son to be the sacrifice for sin. It's a fascinating phrase. In the Old Testament, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul and other writers of the New Testament are quoting from regularly, uh, in their writings, the phrase for sin, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it refers to sin offerings for sin. It is something like, I might be off by one or two counts here, but it is something like 44 occurrences out of 54 refer to sin offerings for sin. Just in using this little phrase, for sin, for sin. The New Testament as well in the book of Hebrews uses this phrase in the same way, sin offering for sin. Friends, the only reason why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because Christ, our substitute, bore our condemnation. It is not, keep in mind, it is not that there is no condemnation at all, period. It is not that there is no condemnation for all, period. There is a condemnation. It just doesn't fall on us, but it falls on God the Son. If you look there at the end of verse 3, what does he condemn? There is a condemnation. He condemns sin in his son's flesh. That is, sin is done away with. That is, the penalty for sin is done away with. Sin is judged. Satan is destroyed. Once again, it is not freedom at the expense of God's justice and righteousness. Our freedom has been purchased at the expense of God the Son's life. This recalls Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and look there. Romans chapter 3, let's go ahead and start for, from verse 23. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, big definition here, whom God Himself put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation is sacrifice of atonement. It's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and satisfies God's wrath. Satisfies God's wrath is really important. God himself puts forward his son to be the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. The death of Christ shows God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He, hasn't, he hadn't judged them uh, to the full weight. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. He proves his righteousness and justice in the sacrifice of Christ and he also justifies sinners who turn to Christ by faith. You see there that justice is actually upheld. It is not freedom at the expense of God's justice and righteousness. It is freedom at the expense of the Son's life. Now, it's important to know that some people object to Christ being a wrath-bearing substitute. Let's step into the mind of the objector here, what some of your friends might object to. Some find it to be offensive to call Christ a wrath-bearing substitute. They say, yes, he was a substitute, but he was a moral substitute. You know, where we can't be so moral, Jesus steps in and he is moral for us. There's no, no language of wrath, no language of judgment. Some also go on to say, yeah, he was a substitute, but only insofar as he suffered unjustly. So in terms of like, we all need liberation, we're all suffering oppression for everybody, from everybody around us and government forces, etc. And here we have our substitute, Jesus suffered unjustly for us. It's also no language of wrath-bearing substitute. But the idea of Christ being the wrath-bearing substitute, right, receiving the wrath that we ourselves deserved on the cross, you know, is off-putting, I think, because embracing that is just a reflection, therefore, on who we are, isn't it? If Christ actually bore the wrath that we deserved, it means that we actually deserve wrath for our sin. That's the part that's offensive. And so in people's offense, they seek to change the doctrine of the atonement, to change the very language here of even propitiation of sacrifice atonement, of even neglecting perhaps certain portions of the word of God. But friends, you know that the Bible says that we deserve God's judgment for sin. That's what we had talked about earlier and a lot of it in the book of Romans. And God, friends, takes that seriously. But that is not something that you, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, that's not something you want to run away from, is it? That's actually something that you want to run towards. The fact that God, God takes sin so seriously that He sends His one and only beloved Son, His only begotten Son, to die on the cross for sin so that sinners would be saved. You would figure that would be something that you would want to run towards, not run away from. It's because He knew that his own righteous requirements of the law hung over sinners because he knew that. That's the reason why he sent Christ to save sinners. It was the salvation of sinners on account of God's love for us that he sends Jesus Christ, his son. He sees total inability and meets it with his own sovereign grace in Christ. He sees that sinners apart from Christ will be judged and he sends his son to make judgment for sin, to bear the wrath that we deserved to condemn sin in the flesh. You look there at verse 4. You have a purpose statement. Look at verse 4. You see the purpose. 
Romans chapter 8. Actually, let's start with 3 again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order, purpose statement, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, Romans chapter 7, but who walk according to the Spirit, those who are genuinely united to Jesus Christ. This brings us to the fourth thing God did to secure no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The fourth thing, because God in Christ has already fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, there is no condemnation. Once again, there is no condemnation because God in Christ has already fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. The righteous requirements of the law, that is, death for sin, was on us, but God has already taken care of it. That's the purpose for sending Christ, for condemning sin in the flesh, is so that the righteous requirement of the law, that is, death for sin, that is, shed blood, is met. You don't run away from that. You want to run toward that once again in condemning sin in the body of Jesus Christ. God's judgment on sin has been met, Christian. It is finished in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His perfect and righteous obedience as the unblemished sacrifice of atonement. In that, righteousness is met. Friends, to insist that there is no condemnation at all, period, still leaves you under condemnation, doesn't it? But to say that there is condemnation just in the Son's flesh according to the will of God all by His grace and love, that brings deliverance. Christians are slow, or sorry, Christians are those who affirm that condemnation was required, but that it was met in Christ our wrath-bearing substitute. We are those who want to run toward the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Right, Christian? I mean, don't you want to do that? Don't you need to do that when you face your own sin? You are not perfect. You know that. We all sin still. And even though we are not finally under sin, we are, we are not enslaved to sin as a power, but sometimes guilt and shame still hounds you for things that you do. The guilt and shame that comes with sin and even as I know, and I've talked to some of you guys about this, even sins that you committed over 20 years ago. What's the solution in that moment when you're struggling with self-righteousness, maybe pride, thinking that God has somehow cast you back under condemnation because you can't do what the law requires? The answer is that you want to run to Christ week after week after week, doesn't it? Which is why we, we try to make our services so gospel-centered so that those who are discouraged, thinking that they are condemned again, would be uplifted to hear the verdict in the gospel. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Once and for all, finality, it is done. It is finished for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we preach the gospel from every passage. We sing about the gospel in our services. We read about the gospel from Ezekiel, even in the Old Testament. We pray about the gospel in our prayers. We run to the gospel every single week. And we're supposed to do this even in day-to-day -day life. So let me encourage you guys, practical application here, memorize these verses to help you run to the gospel day after day after day. If you're tempted to condemn yourself in an ungodly way, thinking that you, uh, for the reason that you can't fulfill the law, friends, you go back to these verses, which will encourage you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for 
because all of these reasons, one, two, three, four. And the reason, I tried to do this actually in preparation for the sermon, thinking, gosh, like, sometimes I really feel guilty. Sometimes I want to make things right, even though the Bible already says that Christ already has. But you just can't do that in this passage here. You just can't insert the I or moral ability into this passage anywhere. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For I brought my morality to the table. Like you, I mean, you just can't do that. There's no space in here to do that. For the law of the Spirit, that is divine help from heaven, comes down and sets me free. It isn't like I'm going to rectify all that I've ever done in the past in order to have right standing before God. There is absolutely no room for that. For the Spirit from heaven has set me free in Christ Jesus from myself, the law of sin and death. And then we say, oh, no, wait a minute. Okay, maybe that's a typo. Maybe I can just slip something in there. Verse number three. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Or... For what the law we can by the flesh could not do, God did. Again, there's no room there for, oh, yes, I actually can. Like God does some of it, and then I do like 2% of it. It's not that. God did it, and he did it by sending his very own son as my substitute. You're, you really are left looking at this passage in the face of the gospel, just thinking like, I really can't do anything. And so you are left to receive it. We cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, and so God did. As one wrote, Christ becomes what we are so that we might become what Christ is. So Christian, this passage here calls you to run towards God, your Savior, over and over and over again. And your reaction, if you are in Christ, we pray will be like the reaction of that woman, that grandmother who receives 50,000 cash. But what we receive, the benefit that we receive, doesn't only last us until our bank account is empty. It lasts us into eternity. And all of this for the love of God. Friends, you know that that's exactly where Paul's going in Romans chapter 8. For the love of God. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In conclusion, there is now no condemnation for you, Christian, who are in Christ Jesus, united to Christ Jesus. God has already liberated you in Christ through His Spirit, set you free to enjoy all of the blessings and to unite you with Jesus Christ. God has already met your total inability with His absolute ability and sovereign grace. God has already condemned your sin in His Son, Christ Jesus. Every sin past and every sin future. And God in Christ has already fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law through His Son's very own perfect obedience. That's why God sent His Son to live the life we could not, to live the righteous life, to fulfill the law, and to die on the cross, bearing the wrath and the weight of sin for every sinner who would ever repent of their sins and believe. This calls you, non-Christian, to repent of your sins and believe. Don't run away from the wrath-bearing substitute, but run toward God the aid giver who gives Christ our aid. In Romans chapter 8, we bask in the benefits of being united with Christ. And here we have the headline. The headline really for all of Romans chapter 8 is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our God who delivers. You are our God who liberates. You are our God who is sovereign, sovereign enough to save us who can't save ourselves. You are a just God. And we thank you that your righteousness was, in fact, upheld. And we praise you because you are a holy God, a righteous God. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being our Savior, for declaring over guilty sinners that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, we pray that when we are tempted towards an ungodly guilt and condemnation, Lord, that we would, in fact, desire to go back to the gospel again and again and again. Humble us, we pray, that we might magnify you and glorify you in your sovereign grace in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we pray, Lord, that out of this experience of knowing that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would send us to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what Paul is doing in the book of Romans going to the ends of the earth and enlisting other Christians in, in this mission. Lord, we pray that you would also send us knowing that we have the greatest gift to give. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would place upon us a desire, even as we leave this place, to be bringing the gospel to those who need it, which is all man. We thank you, Lord, for doing away with sin once and for all in your very own body. Lord Jesus Christ, in your name we pray, amen.